Intelligent design. Was the universe designed by an intelligent agent, or is it just the result of impersonal processes? This topic has stirred a firestorm of controversy and continues to do so. And today, you're going to hear one of the leading experts and leaders in the intelligent design movement. This is Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerman. Pat introduce our guest. Uh, thanks, Kevin. We have a special guest with us on our show today. We have Dr. Jay Richards. He is a senior fellow of the Discovery Institute, one of the leaders of the intelligent design movement. And Dr. Richards received his PhD with honors in philosophy and theology from Princeton Theological Seminary. So, Jay Richards, welcome to the show. Great to be with you. Dr. Richards, you're one of the leaders of the intelligent design movement. What exactly is the intelligent design movement? We are hearing a lot about it in the press today. Is it about getting religion into the sciences in our public schools? Well, no, that's certainly the sort of popular media portrayal, is this is a, a, a new sneaky way of inserting religion into the public schools. Now, I myself think, frankly, that lots of issues that have religious implications are perfectly appropriate uh, in the public square. But intelligent design is pretty easy to define. It's basically a research community of scientists and philosophers that argue that there's empirical evidence, that is, evidence from the natural world, that's best explained in terms of intelligent design. So whether you're looking at the universal constants in physics that look fine-tuned for the existence of life, or nanotechnology and information processing software inside cells, or the things that I've talked about in, in some of my writings, the things you need to build a habitable planet, that when you look at the details of the science, without any blinders on, that we argue, at least those of us in the intelligent design movement, that intelligent design is the best explanation. That has theological implications, of course, but it doesn't rest on explicit theological assumptions. Attending several of the debates the intelligent design have had with the naturalists, one of the criticisms they receive is that if this is just creationism repackaged again. Is, is there a difference between intelligent design and creation science we saw coming out of the 70s? Absolutely. I mean, obviously, uh, anyone that believes there's a creator is a theist is in some vague sense going to be a creationist. But uh, creationism, starting in the 1960s, came to, to mean a very specific set of beliefs, in particular beliefs about the interpretation of Genesis 1, about the, the length of the creation days and things of that sort. So in the sense, creationism rests on a specific set of theological assumptions and then looks for scientific evidence that confirms that. Intelligent design, on the other hand, travels lightly. It doesn't rest on a highly detailed theological program or on a specific interpretation of Genesis 1. Strictly speaking, you wouldn't even need to be a Christian, of course, to pursue an intelligent design research program. You just have to be open to the possibility of evidence for intelligent design. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, a person couldn't do intelligent design research and say, well, you know, the evidence from nature might suggest uh, purpose or design, but it doesn't tell me everything I want to know. That's okay. Uh, that doesn't mean that you can't have other sources for your theological beliefs. It's just that the intelligent design program is quite limited. It restricts itself to those things that we could discern reasonably just by looking at the evidence of the natural world. So it's important to keep that in mind. You might think of intelligent design as having theological implications, uh, whereas creationism per se tends to rest on theological presuppositions. And you know, naturalism it also has theological implications, namely that there is no God or is no intelligent designer, which has theological implications or ramifications, too. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, this is why the famous Darwinist Richard Dawkins said Darwin made it possible to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. So the idea that if a, a view has a theological implication, suddenly that makes it religion, well, that would uh, imply that all sorts of things that are discussed in the sciences 
are religious, and so you can't really have it both ways. I mean, either you have to have an open enough view of science that allows theories, even those that have theological implications, to be you know part of the play, or you rule out a whole lot of things that we otherwise consider science. And so that's the sort of irony of it. I mean, clearly Darwinism has theological implications, and yet everyone assumes it's appropriate in the public square. But if Darwinism is an argument against design and its science, then at least logically speaking, arguments for design can't be ruled out as unscientific. They just have to be ruled out as bad evidence or something like that. I think it's telling, though, that a lot of critics of intelligent design prefer to focus on these philosophical disputes about the nature of science rather than focusing on the evidence. Jay, just give us a brief history of how the intelligent design movement came together. Sure. I mean, of course, the debate about design in the universe is as old as Western history. Plato wrote many of his books uh, essentially as a challenge to the materialists of his age who denied design in ancient Greece. But the modern intelligent design movement really probably dates from the 1980s. The, the first book written by scientists that argued explicitly for design in this kind of modern sense was probably The Mystery of Life's Origins by Roger Olson and Walter Bradley and Charles Saxton. It was a book that essentially analyzed all the origin of life theories popular at the time, those theories that try to explain how you get from chemistry on the one hand to reproducing biological organisms on the other. And they showed that none of the theories held water, that they simply didn't manage to capture the facts that we knew we had before us. Then the authors suggested very modestly that perhaps intelligent design was uh, a better explanation. Now, they didn't develop the argument especially rigorously, but a number of people, including graduate students, people like Stephen Meyer, who went on to get a Ph.D. in philosophy of science from Cambridge University, helped develop the particular argument in the mystery of life's origins much, in much more detail. Another book by a biologist in the 1980s was a book by Michael Denton called Evolution, the Theory, and Crisis, which both critiqued standard Darwinian theory and argued for design. And it's important to realize that Denton is not a Christian, and at the time I don't think he even considered himself a theist. But I would say personally the book that really got the intelligent design movement off the ground was the book by Philip Johnson called Darwin on Trial, which was published in 1991. What's interesting about the arguments in Darwin on Trial were not that they're all brand new arguments. In fact, a lot of people, certainly in the creationist community, were aware of arguments against Darwinism for a couple of decades. But what Phil Johnson did is he managed to make the argument very carefully, and very rigorously, and he also was able to isolate uh, the case against Darwinism and to say, look, is Darwinism an uh, inference from the scientific evidence, or is it basically applied materialism? That is, if you just assume materialism or naturalism, something like Darwinism has to be true. But let's say we set that aside and just look at the empirical evidence. Uh, it, does it really hold up to rational scrutiny? And so he did that without bringing in all the contentious theological issues involved in creationism. And frankly, I think he just got the argument exactly right in 154 pages, and I read the book again last year, and I'm amazed at how lucid the book was. And so in some ways, Phil Johnson, who was a lawyer teaching at law school at the University of California, Berkeley, who's sort of outside the game and able to say things that wouldn't threaten his, his academic credentials, was able to create intellectual space for a number of, of dissidents, philosophers, and scientists, many of whom were perhaps thinking in pure thoughts on their own, but didn't have a community to encourage and to bounce ideas off of. So it was really Phil Johnson's book in 91 that got things started. And then Michael Behe's book, Darwin's Black Box, published in 1996, was the first best-selling book that really brought the intelligent design 
argument to a national stage. Jay, back to Phil Johnson for just a moment. Even though he was a non-specialist in biology and so forth, he was able to see and articulate the philosophical underpinnings of Darwinian evolution and show that it's not just strictly science, that there are these philosophical underpinnings by the, of the way that it's presented. And then people started arguing, well, no, of course not. Philosophy has nothing to do with science. <laughs> and, and then he said, well, is that your philosophy of science? Yeah, well, it's, I mean, it, it's amazing because, of course, when you look at it now, it, it seems clear that Darwin did two things. The first, he proposed a mechanism of natural selection and some kind of random variation, and he said that produces all the adaptive complexity that might otherwise look like it was actually designed. And the other thing, though, that Darwin did is that he helped to institute a new definition of science in the 19th century so that it wasn't simply the search for the natural truth about the natural world, seeking evidence and proposing hypotheses and testing them against the evidence, but it was basically applied materialism. Science is the search for the best materialistic explanation. Well, if you do that, then when you're dealing with Darwinism, you basically rule the chief competitor out of bounds, because the chief competitor of Darwinism was always design. And if design is some suddenly unscientific, then Darwinism wins by default, because it's really the only live alternative to explain all this complexity in biology. And it's a neat trick, but you, you can't determine the nature of reality uh, with a definition of science. And what Phil Johnson did is he, he really exposed the materialistic underpinnings of Darwinism and, and made it clear that when you look at the evidence by itself without the support of this materialistic metaphysics, the evidence is just threadbare. Back to Michael Behay then, the biologist from Lehigh University. Uh, he dropped a big bomb as well with his book, Darwin's Black Box. What happened? Uh, well, it, in 1996, a major New York trade press published this book, Darwin's Black Box, and Behe was associate professor at Lehigh in biochemistry and had been, you know, more or less an orthodox Darwinist most of his career. And it started looking at the evidence more carefully in his discipline, especially the so-called molecular machines at the microscopic level, these systems in biology that biochemists are familiar with. The system he, he made by far the most famous is the so-called bacterial flagellum, which is a little outboard motor that some bacteria use to propel themselves through fluid, and, and Behe essentially set up a test that Darwin himself had suggested. Darwin said, if we could find in the biological world some system that could not possibly have been put together by uh, incremental slight successive modification, he said, then my theory would absolutely break down. In other words, if you found something in biology that you know, got put together and needed multiple parts all to be together at the same time and place for the system to function as a whole, then that would be inaccessible to the Darwinian mechanism. Natural selection uh, doesn't have foresight. It can't say, well, good, I've got two of the 38 parts I need for this flagellum. I'll just hold on to those until I get some hopeful mutations later on. Only intelligent agents have foresight. So if you find a system that would need all of its parts working to give the organism a survival advantage, you find something that on the one hand is evidence against Darwinism, but it's also positive evidence for intelligent design because foresight is the exclusive jurisdiction of intelligent agents. And so Behe detailed some of these molecular machines in his book that he called irreducibly complex. It just means that it has the type of complexity that you try to mess with the system. So with the bacterial flagellum, let's say you try to remove one of the 40 or so protein parts, the system as a whole ceases functioning. And those are just the kinds of things that Darwin anticipated could be a challenge to his theory, but he knew nothing about. The book was published in 1996. It was recently released in the 10-year anniversary edition. It's been reviewed hundreds of times in every major scientific and popular publication from Nature magazine to New York Times, and made, uh, at least in part, 
the word intelligent design a household word. Yes, you know, and Jay, uh, I've looked at the website, A Descent from Darwin, and there's a statement there that over 700 scientists from mm. various different fields have signed being skeptical of Darwinian evolution as an explanation for the complexity and diversity of life. Absolutely. I mean, it's funny, you know, this was started by the Discovery Institute a few years ago just to try to get scientists, many of whom would express skepticism behind the scenes, uh, but weren't willing to make public statements, and just to see how many people would be willing to do this. And yeah, we've now got over 700 scientists that have signed this statement. And it's important to realize that these are 700 people, scientists, most of whom are probably suffering some kind of persecution because of having signed this statement. We know of a number of stories of people who've gotten in real trouble for signing the statement. The point being that there's huge social pressure to conform when it comes to Darwinian evolution. So anyone that decides to sign a public statement like this is doing it in full knowledge that they might suffer some consequences. Well, Jay, there have been several critics of the intelligent design movement. Let me read to you about three sentences from the mm -hmm. National Academy of Science, their website here, and it states this, Creationism, intelligent design, and other claims of supernatural intervention in the origin of life or species are not science because they are not testable by the methods of science. These claims subordinate observed data to statements based on authority, revelation, or religious belief. Documentation offered in support of these claims is typically limited to the special publications of their advocates. These publications do not offer hypothesis subject to change in light of new data, new interpretations, or demonstration of error. How do you respond to that statement? Well, I mean, I think it's the sort of statement that's easily demonstrated to be false in about two minutes. The claim, first of all, that design arguments are based on special revelations. I mean, this is demonstrably false. The hardest, harshest critic that spends 15 minutes looking at the intelligent design literature will never find an argument based on special revelation. Mike Behe's book, for instance, is based on articles from the scientific literature. It's not based upon biblical commentaries or biblical texts. So that claim is just, just false on the, the face of it. The second claim, though, is that intelligent design arguments aren't testable or aren't falsifiable. And this is appealing to a particular definition of science, uh, which basically says, look, if a hypothesis can't be tested somehow against the evidence, uh, then it doesn't qualify as science. Again, this is simply untrue. Behe's book, for instance, uh, when it came out, several scientists, including the biologist Ken Miller, tried to offer evidence that falsified Behe's argument. Now, you can't say both that the argument is unfalsifiable and that it's been falsified. You get to have one or the other. And it's clear how you would falsify Behe's argument. So, for instance, if you could show that the bacterial flagellum could have been put together in a series of steps, with each step along the way conferring a survival advantage on the organism, you would have falsified Behe's specific argument about the bacterial flagellum. I could give you example after example of other design arguments and how they would be falsified. So the question is always going to be whether they can be tested and whether they can be falsified. And if you can show a way that that can happen, then you, you have demonstrated that the argument is falsifiable. And so even on the stated criteria of this official scientific body, the design arguments qualify. What's troubling is that anyone that acquainted themselves with design arguments would know this is true at the beginning. But at least on the other side of this issue, there is dutiful attempts to avoid actually focusing on the evidence and to appeal either to authority or to some definition of science or to try 
uh, to identify intelligent design with with some religious view that the official body takes to be disreputable. Right. You know, in a lot of the debates that I've been watching, that's how many of the opponents of intelligent design will open, saying this is just creationism, these are Christians trying to get religion, and exactly doing what you just stated. Yeah, I mean, it, it's perplexing, because anyone that takes a intro philosophy course knows that you can't refute an argument by impugning the motives of the arguer. Now, you can do this in a court of law, of course, if, you're, if someone is simply giving eyewitness testimony. You can try to discredit their testimony by discrediting them. But that's because the person is giving testimony. But if they make an argument, it doesn't matter if the person is trustworthy or not because you've got the argument there before you. And so it's logically unrelated to the argument itself. And so when someone, of course, tries to, to impugn the motives of design theories, they're simply committing the classic ad hominem fallacy. And all of these critics know this. And so, to me, this is the sort of thing that gives me confidence that we're on the right track, because, uh, you know, if you have evidence, you argue the evidence. When you don't have the evidence, you try, to, uh, you try to rule the argument out of bounds, or you try to discredit your opponent. Dr. Richards, a lot of critique against the intelligent design, and even against, uh, in theology, against uh, the design arguments and so forth, mm-hmm. is that it's a use of human artifacts, and then opposing human design back onto biological systems or cosmological mm-hmm. systems and everything and saying just because you can detect human design that doesn't mean that there's design in biological systems but it seems that uh, one could just as easily argue and, and I'd like for you to break this down for me sure that well look our observations about what is produced by intelligent design or in- intervention can be used as a, a real good evidence or a clue of design no, absolutely. I mean, if the design arguments that are, the, at least the contemporary design arguments that are made, deal with the sort of unique features of intelligent design generally and not of human intelligent design. So the things that humans design, that's a subset of the things that could be designed. But clearly we could recognize design other than human quite easily. I mean, there's the famous Stanley Kubrick movie, 2001, A Space Odyssey, in which astronauts toward the beginning of the movie discovered this black domino-like structure under the surface of the moon. And when they, when they reveal it from under the ground, it immediately transmits a radio signal to Jupiter. Everyone in the movie knows that this is not a moon rock. And the character, a character comes on and says, this is the first evidence we have found of intelligence off the Earth. And you're, you presume that it's uh, some kind of alien artifact. Now, everyone, simply from the structure that they see before them, immediately infers design. We know that that is an intelligent artifact even though there's no reason to think that human beings put it there. Now, sometimes people say, okay, well, yeah, you could maybe recognize alien artifact, but that still wouldn't allow you to infer, say, the design of a creator. But this doesn't make any sense to me, because no matter who the designer of that artifact is, we still detect it on the basis of the same evidence. If God suddenly creates a stop sign, we'd still recognize it as a stop sign, regardless of the fact that God created it. And so... We detect the activities of intelligent design by its effects, regardless of the designer itself. And so that's very important to keep in mind, because, of course, there's lots of scientific research programs that presume that we can detect intelligence in general. The SETI research program, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, looks for specific signatures and radio signals that we would recognize as intelligent. So we already know that we have this capacity to discern intelligence, at least in some cases, So there's no reason, at least initially, to think that if there's evidence of design in biology or astronomy, that we would be incapable of detecting it, just so long as we know the types of properties that we use to infer design in general. 
One more thing that's kind of a subcategory of this is that uh, a lot of uh, our atheist friends cry out pareidolia, which is a word that I was not familiar with until I heard them crying it out (laughs) against intelligent design. And that is the human tendency to impose patterns on objects which otherwise may not even contain any kind of intelligent pattern, like the man in the moon. Sure. You see a stick in the dark and think that it's a snake and so on. So our tendency to impose patterns is actually, they say, what is informing this whole enterprise. Well, they do say that. And of course, it's true. I mean, we are both pattern detectors and pattern imposers. So, you know, if you're not careful, you'll see a cloud and you might think it looks a little bit like Mickey Mouse. And that's why it's important that we not just kind of rest our design arguments on intuition. We don't, don't just say, well, it looks designed, so it must be designed. You need more precision than that. And that's why design theorists develop a set of categories, such as uh, the degree of complexity that something needs to have, the degree of improbability it needs to have, uh, the degree of specification that it needs to have. So design theorist Bill Dembski who's actually in Texas, now at Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth, has developed very rigorously the degree of specificity and the degree of complexity that something needs to have in order for us to be fairly certain that it's designed. Uh, and you can do this, with, at least with some systems, with a you know, level of, of mathematical precision. Now, most of the time, it's important to realize we don't do that. You know, we immediately recognize design without doing any complicated probability calculations. But if you want a good, solid design argument, you want to try to get... Uh, more detail so that, you know, for instance, we know that Mount Rushmore is designed when we see it. Uh, on the other hand, you know, what about a cloud? We, that might look designed, but do we have reason to think it is? Well, usually the difference is that with Mount Rushmore, you have both a highly complex structure, but also one that is very tightly specified, that it matches very precisely the faces of four American presidents. A cloud, on the other hand, it might look a little like Mickey Mouse for a few seconds from one angle. But if you look at it more carefully, it turns out it's not especially specified. So that's important to get that level of rigor if you want a really good design argument. Otherwise, you do tend to be just resting on intuitions. But the design critics that say, well, all these design arguments are just based on false imposing of patterns on the evidence, it's just an accusation unless they can show that you know, there's some kind of sloppiness in the inference. It's nothing but an accusation. Folks, you've been listening to a fascinating interview with Jay Richards. He is one of the leaders of the intelligent design movement, one of the senior fellows with the Discovery Institute. And we've been talking about intelligent design. And we want to also highlight his book that he published along with Guillermo Gonzalez, The Privileged Planet. And Jay, could you tell some information that people, where people could go to receive information on the intelligent design movement? Not only the book, but also the, the DVD that is available is a, a fascinating and beautiful movie. Well, yeah, the book, The Privileged Planet, was a book I co-authored with astronomer Guillermo Gonzalez in 2004. And then a, a documentary uh, was made based on the book uh, by Lustra Media. And you can certainly, you can, I know you can get those at Discovery Institute at discovery.org. And you can also get both of those and get information about them at Amazon. And you can, of course, at Amazon, you can see what both friends and critics say right at the bottom. The, the argument uh, in The Privileged Planet, though, doesn't actually deal in biology. It deals with the evidence from what's called astrobiology, or really the study of everything from the origin of the universe to the origin of life. And we talk about those things you need to get a single so-called habitable planet, that is a planet uh, that can host life like the Earth. At the moment, we know of only one habitable planet in the universe, and it's the one we're on. What's interesting is that in the last few decades, uh, astronomers have gotten a lot of evidence uh, which has conspired to suggest that you really need to get a lot of things right just to get one habitable planet. So you need to be around the right kind of star with 
not too much variation in its energy output, one very much like the sun. You need your planet to be the right size. It needs to be a rocky planet with the right kind of geology, the right kind of atmosphere. It needs a large, well-placed moon like our Earth has that stabilizes the Earth's tilt on its axis so that it stabilizes the climate. You need to have the right kind of planetary neighbors, strangely enough. The large gas giant planets we have in the outer part of the solar system actually protect the Earth from too much bombardment from the comets in the outer part of the solar system. They need to be in the right kind of galaxies, a galaxy very much like our spiral Milky Way galaxy, and you need to be in the right neighborhood in that galaxy, just like you need to be in the right neighborhood in your solar system. The, the Earth has to be just the right distance from its host star. And that's just a quick kind of laundry list of a few of the things you have to get right to build a single habitable planet. Folks, Jay Richards will be back with us next week to go over this on his book, The Privileged Planet. Jay, we'll see you next week. Thanks a lot. We want to thank you so much for listening to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerin on this timely topic and remind you that you can get this entire series at our website, evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll find some of the best resources on presenting and defending your faith in Christ to an increasingly skeptical world at evidenceandanswers.org. World religions, atheism, the cults, the occult, apologetics, scientific and philosophical arguments for the existence of God, creation and evolution, the reliability of the Bible, archaeology and history, and the end times, to name but just a few. There's a new feature on our website called iShows, where you can download each individual show for just $2.50. On our website, evidenceandanswers.org, just like you download a song on iTunes, these are iShows that you can download each individual show you want, and we've got some of the top scholars on there. Evidence and Answers is supported by you, the listener, who appreciates a program that gives good answers to good questions. Our calling is to do what the Apostle Paul did on Mars Hill in Athens. He presented and defended the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we'll help you do the same by the grace of God. Just go to evidenceandanswers.org and any gift or purchase of resources will be a tremendous encouragement to us. And remember that this entire series is available at evidenceandanswers.org. This has been Kevin Harris. Thank you so much for listening to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerman. God bless and thanks so much for listening. Evidenceandanswers.org.